Thanks, Russ. Let's just pray before we open up God's word, shall we? Father, we are so thankful this morning that we can meet and worship you, that we can openly praise your name and openly confess our desire to follow you and surrender our lives to you. Lord, we are coming to a difficult passage this morning that is hard for us to hear, so we ask for your help. We ask for your spirit to give us great understanding to give us great challenge and to give us great encouragement to grow uh, in who we are and to becoming more like your son Jesus as we seek to follow him in our lives. Help us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's good to be able to share God's word with you this morning. My name's Luke, for those that don't know me. Um, like I said, we are coming to a difficult passage, as you might have picked up as Russell read for us. There's some hard words here. There's some heavy words, and this is a message of great warning from Jesus for those who are going to follow him. We must listen. A man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you may have heard of him, and he has a book called The Cost of Discipleship, which I do recommend, not as a light read, but as a, a good read. Um, and he outlines uh, the sobering summary of what it means to follow Jesus. In his context, he was talking in 1930s Germany, uh, where he was speaking into, obviously, a very unique time in human history, in his country, and he was speaking especially in the context of the German church, but at the same time, it sort of seems a timeless truth that he said the biggest enemy of the church at that time, and I think for all time, is that of cheap grace. Cheap grace. And what he meant by that was the kind of grace where we just say we believe without it ever costing us anything, without ever acknowledging that there's something to following Jesus beyond just turning up to church on Sundays or saying we're a Christian, but then not actually living like we're Christians. The kind of grace, he says, that justifies evil and sin, justifies breaking God's commands, the kind of grace that denies God's word. That says you can have forgiveness, but you don't have to repent. That you can have forgiveness and God's grace, but you don't have to really follow Jesus. The kind of grace that, in the end, is grace without the cross and grace without Jesus. In Bonhoeffer's context, of course, churches in Germany were becoming puppets of the Nazi government and he spoke up against that and many others did, became part of the resistance. And for doing that, for owning the name of Jesus and refusing to compromise, they paid the ultimate price. He said this, the only person who has the right to say that they are justified by grace alone is the one who has left all to follow Christ. And he's Echoing this passage, and this passage has meant so much to people like Bonhoeffer and so many others, that it's an it was an encouragement to them. We read it this morning, and go, that's heavy, that's hard. But to them, they ate this up. Because to them, they said, this is where it's really at. This is where we get to live 
our faith out. When following Jesus gets hard, and it will, we have this comfort that Jesus has said this will happen and that he is for us. Jesus has been teaching through uh, the last couple of chapters of Matthew from the end of chapter 9 especially and through what we've been looking at in chapter 10 about his disciples' mission, those that follow Jesus, their mission and their work in the world. And that was to, to go out into the world proclaiming the message of his kingdom, the good news about Jesus has come, um, to do his work. And he says, as you do that, expect hardship. Expect persecution, as we looked at with Lawson last Sunday. And also, as persecution comes, take great comfort in the fact that God values you. That you're worth more than many sparrows. That God thinks of you, knows what you're suffering, and is with you and for you. And in all of that, the great challenge is that we only fear God and not humans. Following Jesus is costly. And Jesus, from talking about persecution and how God is for us and values us, goes in to talk about that further and what it looks like in some of the really hard-hitting areas of life and relationships. You will be hated for it, we've already been told. You may lose your life if you follow Jesus. So following Jesus this morning from our passage, we want to think about how that requ- what that requires. We want to think about how it requires a fearless confession of faith. It requires knowing why Jesus came and what has happened because Jesus has come. It means evaluating our loves, what we love most. And it means answering the question, what does it mean to be worthy of following Jesus? Challenging questions, all of them. But the first couple of things I want to think about is this fearless confession, verse 32 and 33, where Jesus says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I'll acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I'll deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is a, there's a clear transactional element here. It seems easy to follow. Uh, it's simple enough. If we acknowledge Jesus before men, he acknowledges us before God. If we disown Jesus before men, we're disowned by Jesus before God. It's straightforward, but it's also very confronting. And, and many stumble on this. Um, and I want to be careful here because it, this isn't talking about those moments when we have a little mistake. You know, we slip up or we, we slide or we make an error in judgment or we sin in a certain moment. Or that one moment where you knew you had an opportunity to share your faith and you didn't and you feel horrible about that and you go, oh, Jesus must be disowning me now. No, that's not what Jesus means here. The context, of course, that Jesus is talking about, as we thought about last week, is this is a very public setting. It's a very public setting where families were handing over family members who had believed in Jesus to courts of the land for very public trials of, of, of faith. For their faith, sorry. Um, Jesus is speaking about those that have such a strong private testimony of their faith, even in hostile private environments, that overflows to the most public of places where their testimony remains the same. It's consistent. They own Jesus in the private, and they own Jesus in the most public place possible. This isn't a setting where Christians are being 
having all their dirty laundry aired in front of everybody and that's their persecution. That's not persecution. That's just being held accountable to the laws of the land, whether broken moral laws or whatever it might be. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. The great comfort we have in that, of course, is that Jesus' Jesus's work is not to go before his father and say, today Luke did this. Can you believe it? I'm disowning him again. That's not how Jesus works. I have put my faith in him. So even when I do make mistakes, even when I am imperfect, Jesus goes to his father and says, no, he's mine. I, he belongs to me. Now there is, of course, the need of private and public to go together for consistency, but this is the context that Jesus is speaking to. It's very public. And although we don't have those specific kinds of situations that lead to public trials um, here in Australia, of people being put on trial for their faith, that same reality remains. When we stand before others in public, who are we seen as? Because when Jesus stands before his Father for us, we're seen as perfect. But when we stand before others sometimes, it's easier to, to not own the name of Jesus. There's a challenge there. There's also a great encouragement. As we'll see in a minute from another example. But the greatest challenge, of course, is that eternity hangs in the balance, of course. This is our eternal destiny depends on whether the fact that we accept Jesus and put our faith in him or whether we renounce him and reject him. There's no option given here of silence. Silence is rejection. We must own the name of Jesus. Many people, of course, in the world today, in many places in the world, and throughout history have faced this exact choice, been put on trial publicly for their faith and told to renounce Jesus and they could live. Uh, one such figure I've been reading of recently is a man named Thomas Cranmer in 16th century England. He was a bit of a conflicted man in some ways. Um, King Henry VIII appointed him as archbishop just to help him with his marriage issue um, and Cranmer sort of helped him with that so he could marry someone else. And then Henry also wasn't happy with, so he helped him with that. And sort of there was a bit of conflict in Cranmer's sort of um, life, I suppose you could say, as a polite way of putting it. But where there wasn't conflict was his, his total conviction of the grace of God and the simplicity of the gospel. And if people trust in Jesus alone, that is enough to save them. They don't need systems of religion. They didn't need the system of Rome especially. They didn't need to answer to the Pope to get forgiveness of sins and things like that. He was very, very convicted of that and he stood by that for so many years and he did such great work uh, in all of his uh, public writings and of course his public position that he had. Many laws that were passed in England at that time were very God-fearing laws and God gospel-centred laws even. He did so much good work. The common people came to understand the gospel because of his work. He reshaped a lot of English society with what he did. Henry VIII died. His son then also died several years later. And Mary, of course, came to the throne who was Catholic. 
And in that time, she rounded up anyone that wasn't Catholic and were put on trial for their pronouncement of, or denounce, they put on trial for their denouncement of Rome and their profession of faith by grace alone, things like that. Cranmer, of course, was rounded up. And initially, when he saw the death of two of his friends, Littimer, um, Latimer and Ridley, he denounced Christ. He said, I renounce everything I've ever said, written and done. I'll come back to Rome. Then he changed his mind again. He was given an opportunity to preach publicly, to renounce everything he'd ever said or done. And that he took the opportunity to say, I'm not going to Rome. I'm not going to follow the Pope. I'm not going to submit to the Queen. If I die because of that, that's fine. The first thing that will burn is this hand because I'm going to put it in the fire because that's the one I signed my renunciation of Jesus with. A conflicted man, not a perfect man. But his confession of faith um, didn't have to be perfect. He didn't have to live a perfect life in order for Jesus to say he's mine. Only Jesus, of course, is perfect. And thank God that we are not disowned every time we make a mistake. And publicly professing Christ takes courage. But we receive that courage by the spirit that dwells within us and by the fact that we have Jesus acknowledging us before the Father. For Christians, our call is to this fearless confession. This is 34 to 36. Uh, Jesus goes on to talk a bit further and he wants his followers to pay very close attention. He has this caution in verse 34, do not think. And it's very clear what he does not want us to think. Do not think this. I have not come. He says it three times. I have not come. I have, sorry, do not think that I have come to bring peace to this. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to set man against father, daughter against mother, etc. Jesus really wants his followers to understand, don't miss why I've come and what's happened because I've come. And at first this seems, again, hard. Why does Jesus say this? This seems to contradict everything else about Jesus' ministry that we know about him. From his birth, when the angels came to the shepherds and they said, Peace on earth, goodwill to all men. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour, who is Christ the Lord. Good news. That was foretold by the prophets in the Old Testament that spoke about this Messiah would come and bring peace. Isaiah said he'd be called the Prince of Peace. Jesus himself in his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Blessed are the peacemakers. Just earlier in this chapter, as he's sending his disciples out on mission, and he said, as you go into a home to do my work, to share the good news of the kingdom, as you go in there to see what you can do to heal, to, to help those who are suffering, to cast out demons, whatever work you're doing, bring peace to that home. And yet here, he says, don't think that I've come to bring peace I've come to bring a sword. Peace, of course, is not the absence of trouble. It's not the absence of strife. Because Jesus' coming declared war in so many ways. 
on evil, on sin, and on death. And it declared war on the enemies of God, of course. Our peace for those who follow Jesus is a true and real and lasting thing. A relationship with God brings peace that we need. God's salvation brings peace to anyone who trusts in Jesus. But to those who do not trust in Jesus, there is no peace. Just conflict. Dear Carson said this about this passage and the theme of Jesus coming into the world and causing this division. So when Jesus confronts the world, there will be division. There is inevitably division. Things have to be cut in sunder. Things have to be divided. Jesus is divided between our wants and our needs because he's come. Because Jesus has come, there's a division now between practice of faith and trust in God alone and practice of ritual and religion. There's a division between those practices of religion and relationship. And in relationships, there's division. Because some will trust in Jesus and some will not. There's division between, most of all, what's temporary and what's eternal. And that has happened. That division has happened because Jesus has come. Jesus here quotes from Micah chapter 7 when he talks about a man turning against his father, daughter against mother, in those verses in uh, 35 and 36. And that's describing in Micah's time, a time in uh, the nation of Israel, the people of God, where there was just... Um, where the king was evil and it was the whole land was turning against one another. Micah 7 verse 2 says, The, the faithful have been swept from the land. Just evil was reigning. And Jesus here, as Micah was saying that, Jesus saying, Micah was foreshadowing what I was going to do in reverse. I was going to bring an opportunity for something to believe in faith to bring back the right definition of what is good and right. I was going to come to defeat evil, but instead, evil will always fight back. So long as this world remains, there will be good and evil at war with one another. So Jesus has said, I've come back and there is division. People will turn against others. And it's not nations around them. It's not our neighbouring nations. It's not foreign powers that give the most threat. Enemies will be in our own households. Evil is still seeks to, to stamp out faith and replace it with fear. And quite often, homes and families are used as the chief battleground. If you are a Christian in your home, especially if you are standing alone as a Christian in your home, you are not being called to see your family as enemies in some senses. You're not being called to attack them. Jesus is not poisoning the family relationship. He's saying you will be attacked. You will be betrayed. You will be handed over, possibly to your own death. Of course, many, many Christians throughout all of history have experienced exactly that 
And many in our world are experiencing that today in many countries. There's, of course, I think a warning as well because we like to twist God's word and some people actually enjoy this aspect of life, that there's conflict. And I've had this verse quoted to me when I've gone to speak to people about their constant need to cause contention, division and strife and just their constant need to mock others and belittle others and denigrate others. They quoted this verse. Jesus came to bring a sword, doing the Lord's work. That is not what Jesus meant either. The church does not have a mandate to attack people that that don't agree with the church or don't agree with Christ. We're actually explicitly told in Ephesians chapter 6, we do not battle against flesh and blood. Jesus is the focus of his mission. The only reason that people should stumble, be offended, be upset, ostracize us, condemn us, is because we believe in Jesus. He's the only reason people around us should pull away from us, mock us, malign us, do whatever. That's the only reason. It's not because we are offensive or offending, but it's Christ in us. That we live in an age where there's much, this public mocking is easy, public outrage is easy. It's a default position to be divisive, to be polarizing. He said, no. That's not the message that Jesus is sharing here today. As Christians, we are called to remember, yes, Jesus brings a sword, but he's also told us to love our enemies, to do good to those who hate us, to pray for them to despitefully use us and persecute us. And he's told us to sacrifice ourselves, as we're going to see in a minute. Our own rights, our own agendas... Do not matter in the equation. It's always tempting to have that last word in an argument, in a debate. To always put the other person down. Jesus says, just leave that in my hands. Just own my name. Let Jesus have the last word. What's the challenge from this section is like the first... You cannot meet Jesus and remain indifferent. He's turned the world upside down by coming. And everyone must one day give account as to whether they have believed in him or not. Verses 37 to 39 outline further challenge of what it looks like to follow Jesus and the cost of it. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What does it take to be worthy of following Jesus? 
It's a question I think we must deal with in some senses, is counting the cost. Bonhoeffer said that any presentation of the gospel that did not mention the cost of following Jesus was not the full gospel. And it led, as we talked about, to cheap grace. What does it take to be worthy of following Jesus? In some ways, nothing, because you just come to him and you surrender yourself. And I said nothing, but does that sound like nothing? What does it take to be worthy of following Jesus? It's to love him more than anything else or anyone else in the world. Put him first. And that will cost you everything in this life. Jesus uses the example of the family again. One of the most beautiful things we can experience in this life is the love of family. Families shape us into who we are. And Jesus speaks of the love between parents and children and that is something of the most precious things in the world. And we know that because when we see it as not, when we see it in its wrong environment, when we see it done wrongly, we know it's wrong. We see it and we go, no, that is not how it's meant to be. It hurts. It's broken. It's divided. And in Jesus' day, it was even more so true for the family unit. That was the very core of society was the family unit. And now to that, in our day, the family unit has been maligned, redefined, all sorts of things. But we still value family. But in Jesus' day, the family was everything. Yet here Jesus is saying, if you love your mother or father or your son or daughter more than me, you're not worthy of me. And when the truths of who Jesus is as king come into any society, choices have to be made. And this results in, as we've seen in this passage, families turning against those who follow Jesus. It can result in Christians being betrayed by their own families. And Jesus is taking it a step further and says, anyone who loves their family more is and they love Jesus is not worthy of him. Again, caveat on that, Jesus is not calling for an unloving attitude. He's talking in degrees. So love for Jesus must be priority. It must be first. And where that plays out the most is usually in family. Our willingness to put him first must go to the core of who we are. And most of the time that is with the set, in the setting where, with what we value the most. What are we willing to say no to for the sake of Jesus? Because Jesus and family will so often conflict, be in conflict if one is always competing against the other. I think there's also the reality that the family setting is the most unique setting where faith in Jesus can be put on the most powerful display, where you can live out the very practical application 
of the gospel in love and forgiveness. And it's a challenge for us because when we do not display love and forgiveness in our homes and our families, let's question if we've experienced the love and forgiveness of Christ. But in following Jesus and being fully loyal to Jesus, in full awareness of the conflict that that's going to bring with everything in life, we must acknowledge that sometimes we can be more devoted to others or to other things than we are to Christ. But the greatest hindrance in following Jesus, though, is, is not usually family. They may ostracize, they may shame and condemn and embarrass. Society might do the same. They might even make laws that would seek to constrict us and confine us and um, make us assimilate. But society is not the greatest hindrance to my following Jesus. The greatest hindrance to me following Jesus is usually my own heart. my own desire to have things my way, my own desire to be in control, my own desire to have the things that I want in life. And when we live that way, Jesus says, you don't have me first. There are many instances, of course, where someone becomes a Christian, family abandons them, casts them out. There's so much pain in that. And I've experienced it myself in seeing family that doesn't want anything to do with other members of the family simply because they're Christian. Jesus says this will happen and it's part of the cost. True discipleship requires, though ultimately, the death to self a willingness to die for Jesus. Jesus says, anyone who is not willing to take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. If we are to follow him, we must follow him everywhere he went. And Jesus, in all of this passage, he has not yet asked his followers to do anything that he did not experience. He was disowned by family and called crazy. He was betrayed by those closest to him and handed over the courts and to the authorities. He was beaten and flogged and given a cross to bear and carry, on which he died. And the disciples, hearing this, of course, this is before they know what's going to happen and Jesus says, take up your cross. All they would have heard is, take up the most humiliating form of suffering and death you can possibly imagine, carry it, or you're not worthy of me. What would that even mean to them? Of course, they would know later, and we know now what it means. And when we look at the cross of Christ, we do not see humiliation in the sense of the way the world sees humiliation. We do not see defeat in the way the world sees defeat. 
We do not see failure, we see the ultimate act of triumph in a saviour that gives himself completely for all. Any who would believe then rises again from the dead. Jesus calls us to nothing that he has not experienced himself. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who spoke so forthrightly in regard to the cost of discipleship, uh, he backed up what he wrote. Many years after he wrote what I quoted earlier, he had an opportunity to die for the name of Jesus and for his faith in God. He died um, just two weeks before the, uh, the Second World War ended. Two weeks after he's died, Allied troops came into the camp where he'd spent his last few days. He died by firing squad two weeks earlier. He was killed in part because of his active resistance against the Nazi government, but he was killed most of all because of his just outright refusal to compromise his beliefs. And to the end, he had this witness of steadfast faith and devotion to God. And the camp doctor that observed the last moments of his life, last hours and minutes, and pronounced him dead at the end. Camp doctor said, in 50 years as a doctor, I've never seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. And this exact passage that we're reading this morning was read out at his memorial service in, in London in 1945. He knew the cost. And he faced that cost, I'm sure, with, I know with great fear, his letters speak of that. Great fear of knowing he would never see his fiancée or his beloved family again. But the great hope that Jesus had never disowned him. What does it take to follow Jesus? Everything. And if you decide to follow Jesus and if you commit your life to him, it does require full surrender. It means going when no one else will go with you. It means going when others are turning back. But it also means following a victorious saviour who has walked the same path in victory for us. Let's pray. Father, we are so confronted by what Jesus shared with his disciples and what is here for us this morning. that your son was sent into the world. Yes, to redeem the world. And yes, the, his coming is great news and brings peace for all who believe in him. But Lord, he also brought a sword. There will be division in this world. People will be against us because they are against him. Lord, as we seek to follow Jesus, Lord, we, in our society we are too comfortable possibly. But at the same time, may we acknowledge that there will be a cost. Requires putting him first and loving him first and seeing the path that he has walked in great victory and confessing him 
as Lord of our lives. Lord, give us great grace for areas where we have at times stumbled, where we haven't confessed you. Lord, thank you that you confess us before your Father. We pray that our testimony, our confession, our witness would be one with a message of love to others, no matter how we are treated, one of sacrifice for your sake and for your glory. By your Spirit, help us to live and walk in this way. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.